Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour, a 60-minute weekly program bringing you news of interest from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 26th of August for the listening week that begins the 27th, and your reader's name is Susan Shirey. For starters this week, we'll catch up on some news from the Inspiring Women series from Barbie Mattel. The first article was posted in January of this year. These come via Yahoo Life news source, and it was written by Carla Caramana. Barbie's latest doll honors trailblazing journalist Ida B. Wells, the newest release in their Inspiring Women series. Launched in 2018, the Barbie Inspiring Women series is a doll line paying tribute to historical and present-day role models. Each woman honored in the series has made history by paving the way for generations of girls to reach their full potential dream bigger, and make their voices heard. The line has previously paid tribute to greats like Maya Angelou, Rosa Parks, Helen Keller, Billie Jean King, and Eleanor Roosevelt. Barbie will now honor a new heroine who has changed the course of history and ultimately made the world a better place, Ida B. Wells, an early civil pardon me, an early leader in the civil rights movement and co-founder of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP. Not only did Wells fight for black equality, but for that of women. According to the Mattel manufactured company's Instagram announcement, Barbie is proud to honor the incredible Ida B. Wells as the newest role model in our inspiring women series. When kids learn about heroes like Ida B. Wells, they don't just imagine a better future. They know they have the power to make it come true. The latest release is part of the iconic brand's unwavering commitment to spotlight black role models who are female and continue to provide resources that directly impact the community. The Wells doll is dressed in a floor-length lace dress and holds a miniature replica of the Memphis Free Speech, the newspaper where she would eventually become both editor and co-owner while only in her 20s. The doll's wardrobe is meant to showcase her activist spirit and inspire girls to be their own trailblazers through imaginative play. The doll was created in partnership with Ida B. Wells' family, including her great-granddaughter, Michelle Duster. She, too, has carved her own path as a public historian and author of the newly released book, Ida B. Wells' Voice of Truth. She said, My great-grandmother was known to be opinionated, uncompromising, difficult, unreasonable, and many other things that strong women can sometimes be labeled. I admire how she ignored the negativity and stayed focused on her goal, even when she had to sometimes go it alone. She added, She showed by example 
how important it is to believe in yourself even when others don't see the vision or believe that something is possible. Your own belief is enough. Ida B. Wells was a journalist, activist, suffragist, and researcher who tirelessly helped shine a spotlight on civil injustice. She was born into slavery and struck with a series of tragedies early in life but persevered to later become arguably the most famous black woman in America at the time. Her achievements include co-founding the NAACP and the National Association of Colored Women's Clubs. An anti-lynching crusader, she was also honored in 2020 with a posthumous Pulitzer Prize. The the Barbie-inspiring women series is part of the brand's efforts to close what they call the Dream Gap, based in New York University Research, pardon me again, based on New York University Research, indicating girls begin to develop self-limiting beliefs around the age of five. The ongoing global initiative was created to offer support and resources that encourage girls to become good leaders and take interest in a wide variety of careers. Since launching in 2018, the program has donated $250,000 each year to charities who work directly with young girls. To honor the release of the Ida B. Wells Barbie, the Barbie Dream Gap Project will be funding writing and publishing programs for female and gender-expansive youth. Additionally, a virtual Barbie Dream Gap event was held on February 18th in partnership with Michelle Duster. In conjunction with the release, Barbie partnered with Girls Right Now, an organization that seeks to inspire the next generation of female journalists. That nonprofit strives to break down the barriers of race, gender, age, and poverty through mentoring. Barbie will also encourage Amazon customers to make philanthropic donations to Girls Right Now in celebration of Black History Month last February by selecting the organization as their preferred charity on Amazon Smile. Next article, same author. This was published August 24th for their latest release. Barbie honors the nation's first self-made female millionaire, Madam C.J. Walker, with a new doll. Mattel's latest release honors the life of entrepreneur, philanthropist, and social activist, Madam C.J. Walker. Coinciding with August's Black Business Month, the doll is part of Barbie's Inspiring Women series. Madam C.J. Walker, born in 1867, was a black American entrepreneur who would eventually become the nation's first self-made female millionaire, as documented by Guinness World Records. Most known for creating a successful line of hair care products and cosmetics, specifically for black women, her determination led her to open doors for the next generation of women entering business. Her legacy includes supporting the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the Young Women's Christian Association, the Young Men's Christian Association, and several black colleges. As a pioneer in entrepreneurship, philanthropy, and activism, creating the blueprint for the self-made American businesswoman and innovators of the 20th century, 
Madam C.J. Walker is an embodiment of our Barbie Inspiring Women series, said Lisa McKnight, the executive, pardon me, executive vice president and global head of Barbie and dolls for Mattel. The Madam C.J. Walker doll is dressed in a printed floral blouse paired with a full-length turquoise skirt. It holds a miniature replica of her original Wonderful Hair Grower product. Barbie tapped a prolific voice of today, Walker's great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles, for the doll's creation. As the author of On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, Bundles worked directly with Mattel from packaging to hair development. The experience was particularly exciting for Bundles, who became a doll collector in her adult life when she discovered black doll artists. To be able to have Madam C.J. Walker included in Barbie's Inspiring Women series means her story will go out across the world in a way it never has before, said Bundles. To know little girls and big girls will have access to Madam Walker, and just that physical symbolism of her story means it's going to be exploding exponentially in a way it never has before. Her great grat pardon me again, her great great grandmother's story has led the formal network former network television executive to pursue a life of service. Bundles currently serves on the boards of the March on Washington Film Festival, Columbia Global Reports, and the Schlesinger Library on the History of Women in America at Harvard's Radcliffe University. Pardon me, that's Radcliffe Institute. I hope that big girls, women, will be as excited about this doll as little girls, she says that they can take that doll and put it on the shelf in their office and look at her as inspiration. For little girls, she went on, I think there's a real message in the way they play. They can look at somebody like Madam C.J. Walker and maybe see themselves as an entrepreneur, maybe see themselves as a person who is involved in social justice. Bundles worked with Mattel every step of the way, Together they were able to face the unique challenge of the clothing design. We only see black and white photos of women in the early 1900s, says Bundles, but we were able to use purple and turquoise, which were two of her favorite colors, to brighten things up and make the doll feel fashion-forward. The Madam C.J. Walker Barbie is available beginning August 24th at Walmart. Target, Amazon, and Mattel Creations for a suggested retail price of $35. Next, I'll move to theroot.com for an article about Black August. This is written by Candace McDuff. It was posted on the 25th. We know about Black History Month, but do you know about Black August? The alternative to Black History Month began in 1979 and recognizes radical thought leaders. Although February is known as Black History Month, there is an alternative time where our contributions are recognized, Black August. It was devised in 1979 to celebrate the Black Panther Party. In August of 1971, Panther George Jackson was killed in a violent uprising in California's San Quentin State Prison. 
His younger brother, Jonathan, was killed a year earlier at Marin County Superior Court in California in an attempt to free inmates. Jackson was a well-known activist, author, and revolutionary who endlessly fought for liberation. It's been 51 years since his death, but Black August is now known as a month-long effort to celebrate black radicals, freedom fighters, revolutionaries, and political prisoners. It's important to do this now because a lot of people who were on the radical scene during that time period, relatives and non-relatives, who are like blood relatives, are entering their golden years, said Jackson's nephew, Jonathan. George Jackson was just 18 years old when he was arrested for robbing a Los Angeles gas station in 1960. He was convicted, sentenced to one year to life. Jackson spent the next 10 years at California's San Quentin and Soledad prisons. Most of that time was in solitary confinement. In prison, Jackson began reading works by Vladimir Lenin and Karl Marx, who discussed the dangers of capitalism and the importance of revolution. Founding leaders of the Black Panther Party, Bobby Seale and Huey P. Newton, were also inspired by Marx and Lenin. Black August has been embraced around the country, especially by various Black Lives Matter chapters. It's difficult sometimes for radicals who were not assassinated, per se, to enter into the popular discourse, said Jackson. George and Jonathan were never victims. They took action, and they were killed taking that action, and sometimes that's very difficult to understand for people who will accept a political assassination. The next few will be from theroot.com. This one's by Marjani Rawls. It was posted on the 24th. Americans lack an understanding of the civil rights era. This is why anti-woke movement is dangerous. A survey by More in Common says that Americans know figures like Martin Luther King Jr. and Rosa Parks, but not much beyond that. As children in some Republican-led states return to school, the curriculum will be vastly different. From the start of 2022, there has been an anti-critical race theory crusade to provide the youth with a whitewashed, non-confrontational version of Americans' history. If it were left up to Republican lawmakers, they would only recite the only verse from Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech that they know. You know the one. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. A more recent survey by More in Common, oh, pardon me, it's a recent survey by More in Common shows why teaching all aspects of the civil rights movement is so crucial for people to see it wasn't as easy as they think. The survey shows most Americans remember the period for its, quote, nonviolent protests and leaders, including King and Rosa Parks. However, most appear to lack robust knowledge of the era, and memories are murky when an event experienced pushback or encountered riots and violence. It's easy to teach the non-messy events of the civil rights era where things seemed like they all came together, 
This is why education is more vital than ever. People that were surveyed couldn't list five events from the period. And when they did, it was Brown versus Board of Education, the March on Selma, and the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Again, these are integral events, but there was a lot that black people lost in the fight for equal protection. We must teach the ugly parts to learn from the ills of white supremacies in this country. That means talking about police officers turning dogs and fire hoses on black people during sit-ins, or the terrible amounts of slurs levied in the direction of black children who went to integrated schools. Dr. King was arrested 30 times for everyday things like taking the bus or sitting at a restaurant. Figures like Fred Hampton, Angela Davis, Malcolm X, and Shirley Chisholm need to be part of the conversation to show the diverse ideologies of voices regarding the civil rights movement. But Republican efforts are trying as hard as possible not to make this possible. If there's a silver lining from the survey, it's these two facts— 77% of those surveyed agreed that all students should learn about leaders other than King and Parks. Another 80% agreed that students should learn both the movement's successes and the struggles those involved faced. So if the thirst for learning is there, why not teach them? Perhaps it's the Republican leaders who are most afraid of guilt coming from the past. Also, by Mirjani Rawls, was posted on the 26th, Racist Jim Crow provisions are alive and suppressing black votes in Mississippi. A ruling from the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals Court allows the disenfranchisement of black voters in Mississippi to continue. The Root has written extensively about the new wave of voter suppression laws that have become more prevalent ever since black people exercised their right to vote in record numbers during the 2020 presidential election. Republican-led states such as Texas, Florida, and Georgia are just reimagining voting suppression tactics from an old playbook of poll taxes and Jim Crow laws. That's abundantly clear from what is happening in Mississippi right now, according to the Mississippi Free Press, The 5th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals has allowed an 1890 Jim Crow-era voting law to continue. Yes, in 2022, remnants of Jim Crow are still allowed to exist in southern states. While the primarily conservative court conceded the Mississippi law was steeped in racism, they believed the state had done enough since then to dilute the law's impact on black Americans. Just as recently as April, Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves vetoed a bill that would have overturned this provision. No wonder Mississippi has never elected a black candidate for office, despite having the largest black population in the country. In 1890, newly newly emancipated black Americans were making progress using their right to vote. At the same time, a white supremacist-dominated Mississippi legislative body was working to stop that by any means necessary. 
They got together and constructed parts of the state constitution that added crimes they believed mostly black people committed in order to justify rescinding their right to vote forever and explicitly keep white rule in place. How hard is it to get your rights restored today? As Mississippi Today points out, fewer than five people successfully gain their right to vote each year. The attorney for the Mississippi Center for Justice, Rob McDuff, argued that the provision violates the 14th Amendment. He said, This provision was part of the 1890 plan to take the vote away from black people who had attained it in the wake of the Civil War. Rob McDuff is the attorney with MCJ who argued that Jim Crow violates the 14th Amendment's guarantee of equal protection under the law. He went on, Unfortunately, the Court of Appeals is allowing it to remain in place despite its racist origins. Despite this setback, we will continue this battle and seek review in the U.S. Supreme Court. There is a plan to appeal this ruling to the Supreme Court. However, given the current makeup of judges there, there's no guarantee this racist law will be removed. Next article is written by Candace McDuffie. It was posted on the 22nd. Oh, pardon me. It was posted on the 12th of August and written by Keith Reed. Eric Adams should definitely bus New Yorkers to Texas. The New York City mayor is tired of the Texas governor's fooliwang. We're here for it. New York Mayor Eric Adams knows about getting tough on nonsense. After all, the Root hasn't been shy about criticizing some of the ex-cop bravado he has brought to the office. But here's one cut-the-BS take we're not mad at from his owner. Adams is fed up with Texas Governor Greg Abbott's game of shipping desperate migrants across the country as a protest against so-called sanctuary cities, and he's ready to put his own political muscle on the line to stop it. Earlier this week, the NYC mayor threatened to load up a bus of his own, not filled with tired, poor, huddled masses yearning for freedom in the U.S., but with New Yorkers ready to put their Thames on the ground, turn their Yankee caps backward, and organize Texas voters to send Abbott into an early retirement. This following quote from the Houston Chronicle, I already called all my friends in Texas and told them how to cast their votes, said Adams during a Tuesday news conference. I am deeply contemplating taking a busload of New Yorkers to go to Texas and do some good old-fashioned door-knocking because we have to get him out of office. Adams' statement comes after he blasted Abbott on Sunday, claiming the governor had lied to migrants about the destination of the buses, a charge Abbott's office has vehemently denied. End of that quote. Adams is no stranger to superlatives or bombastic rhetoric, so it's hard to tell how serious to take the threat. What is real is the cruelty of loading up buses filled with people who, in many instances, risked their lives to make it into the United States, and then shipping them across the country, all to score political points. 
Abbott, a Republican, views it in his favor to oppose illegal immigration, which in today's politics equates to savage policies like the Trump administration's forced separation of migrant children from their families. Parentheses. That isn't to say that Democrats don't also deserve blame for the ongoing mistreatment of black migrants from countries like Haiti, which has continued through both the Obama and Biden administrations. In parentheses. Whether Adams is serious or not, picturing a busload of Brooklynites or a hand pardon me, or a huddle of Harlemites offloading in the middle of H Town for some good old fashioned door knocking in an attempt to get Abbott kicked to the curb is a fantastic exercise for the imagination. We'd love to see it. Next article by Marjani Rawls was posted on the 18th of August. DOJ says Florida Republicans specifically targeted black voters with restrictions. Florida's SB 90 law wants to restrict the availability of absentee ballot drop boxes and food and water access at voting stations. A recent filing by the Justice Department claims Florida Republicans intentionally targeted black voters with restrictions, which will surely hamper turnout for the upcoming midterm election, according to The Guardian. This stems from Florida's SB 90 law, wanting to restrict the availability of absentee ballot drop boxes. Regulations for third-party voter registration groups and a ban on providing food and water to people standing in line to vote with the new laws. The Department of Justice stated to a federal appellate court pardon me, that they agreed with U.S. District Judge Mark Walker's ruling to block new restrictions for now. In particular, the DOJ felt that Florida lawmakers enacted these restrictions because of the surge in black voter turnout during the 2020 presidential election. 1.9 million black voters are said to reside in Florida, according to the state's Division of Elections. U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit paused that ruling earlier this year while considering an appeal from Florida officials. This following quote from The Guardian, The district court's Core factual findings are that, in the face of surging turnout in the 2020 election, the Florida legislature responded by enacting provisions that impose disparate burdens on black voters, DOJ lawyers wrote in their brief, which were chosen precisely because of those burdens to secure a partisan advantage. The court's findings of discriminatory intent are a permissible view of the record based on the entirety of the evidence, end quote. While Florida officials claim the law doesn't discriminate against black people, the DOJ believes it violates Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which prohibits racial discrimination in voting practices. In addition, Democratic attorneys general from 16 states filed a friend-of-the-court brief to ask an appeals court to reject the restrictions. As Orlando Weekly notes, officials such as District of Columbia Attorney General Carl Racine and New York Attorney General Letitia James stated, the use of drop boxes and mailboxes more generally 
are well-established practices in Florida and around the country, and neither has given rise to substantial fraud. Our next article from their sports section by Stephanie Holland. It was posted on the 26th. Serena Williams's first-round opponent in the final tournament revealed. Serena and Venus Williams lead a U.S. Open draw full of talented black women. The U.S. Open is the final major of the year, but more importantly, it's the final tournament in the legendary career of Serena Williams. According to ESPN, Serena will play Danka Kovinic, currently ranked number 80 in the world. The two have never played one another, so there's a chance the 27-year-old from Montenegro could be intimidated by the moment. Serena has admitted, already, she'll be emotional when she steps onto the court. While appearing on the debut episode of Megan, the Duchess of Sussex's podcast Archetypes, the 23-time Grand Slam champion explained how difficult it will be to say goodbye to tennis when she said, I'm going to be crying at everything. Don't think I'm sad. It's not sad tears. I've been doing this since I can remember, and I'm 40 years old now. So it's like my whole entire being and my whole entire life has been for one purpose. So to not do that anymore, it's exciting, right? I'm really looking forward to it, she said. The four-time Olympic gold medalist has played in two U.S. Open warm-up tournaments, but she's lost in the opening round of both. If she makes it past Kovinic, Serena will likely play number two seed Annette Kontaviet in the second round. Elsewhere in the draw, Serena's equally legendary sister, Venus Williams, will begin her time in New York against Alison van Uitvank of Belgium. The two-time U.S. Open champion hasn't played much singles in the last year, so this may be her only solo match. However, it's a safe bet, but Venus, oh, pardon me, it's a safe bet Venus may also compete in either women's or mixed doubles. Number 12 seed Coco Goff will start the quest for her first major title against an yet unnamed qualifier, while former U.S. Open finalist Madison Keys plays Ukraine's Diana Yastremska. Taylor Townsend competes with the Czech Republic's Katarina Senyakova, and 2017 U.S. Open champion Sloane Stevens battles Greet Mitten, Greet Minen of France. Two-time U.S. Open champion Naomi Osaka, who hasn't had a great year of competition, begins her fight for a third title versus the number 19 seed American Danielle Collins. It's exciting to see so many black women in the draw this year. As we prepare to give Serena her flowers, all these amazing athletes competing on one of the sport's biggest stages is her and Venus's true legacy. The 2022 U.S. Open begins Monday, August 29th on the ESPN Networks. This looks like our final article from TheRoot.com. This one's by Jessica Washington. It was posted on August 17th. Here's how Biden's Inflation Act helps black Americans with diabetes. 
going to be generous and say that the Democrats have had a somewhat rocky time of late trying to pass their agenda. But on Tuesday, President Joe Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act, the Build Back Better Act's trimmed-down cousin. There's a lot we could say about the Inflation Reduction Act, which expands Medicare benefits, invests in fighting climate change and pollution, and extends Affordable Care Act subsidies. But I want to zero in on one of the most immediate parts of the bill, the reduction in insulin costs for most Medicare recipients by 2023. Over 5 million black Americans live with diabetes, according to the American Diabetes Association. Roughly 19% of all African Americans in the United States over 20 years old have diabetes, compared to just 7% of all white Americans. Despite the fact that so many Americans with diabetes require insulin, roughly 30%, insulin prices have skyrocketed over the years. Today, the most prescribed forms of insulin can cost anywhere from $175 to $300 a vial, according to Forbes. Most diabetes patients need at least two to three vials per month. And even if you get Medicare, the average out-of-pocket cost of insulin products is over $54 per prescription, and that's according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. This is where the Inflation Reduction Act comes into play. The act would cap insulin costs for most Medicare recipients at $35 a month, beginning in 2023, and would cap out-of-pocket drug costs at roughly $4,000 a year by 2024 and $2,000 a year by 2024. I think that's a typo. I think the first one's probably for 23. It would also allow Medicare to negotiate the costs of certain prescription drugs. This could be a huge improvement for many black Medicare recipients who receive drug drug coverage and also take insulin. As of 2011, roughly 38% of black Medicare beneficiaries had diabetes, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, and nearly a third of black Medicare beneficiaries reported health care cost-related problems in 2018. Here's where you might be asking, what about everybody who isn't on Medicare? What does the bill, why does the bill leave them out? Democrats did attempt to cap insulin prices for private insurers, but because they don't have a supermajority, which would be 60 votes or more in the Senate, Republicans were able to strip the provision out on the Senate floor. Despite losing the battle over capping insulin costs for private insurers, it is likely that Democrats are still enjoying their win after months of failing to get most parts of their agenda passed. And if you're a diabetic on Medicare's prescription drug policy, this bill is likely a win for you too. Oh, one more from TheRoot.com. This is by Kaylin Womack. It was posted on the 25th. Police arrest Alabama pastor for, no joke, watering flowers. The pastor said he plans to move forward with a discrimination lawsuit. I know that police arrest black people for anything these days, but this is just outrageous. 
A Childersburg, Alabama pastor was arrested while watering his neighbor's flowers, according to WBRC. According to the video footage, several witnesses confirmed he was supposed to be there, but the officers refused to remove his handcuffs. Pastor Michael Jennings of Vision of Abundant Life Ministries returned home from service one Sunday in May and went to water his neighbor's plants. That's when someone called police on him, claiming an unfamiliar SUV was parked outside the neighbor's house and that an unknown man was lurking on the property. Per the body camera footage, the officers approached Jennings, asking him what he was doing at the house. Jennings responded, Watering flowers. I'm supposed to be here. I'm Pastor Jennings. I live across the street. I'm looking out for their house while they're gone. Read how the situation escalated in this quote from The Independent. The police officer asks Mr. Jennings to present identification, which Mr. Jennings declined to do, telling the officer that he did nothing wrong. After less than two minutes of the recorded interaction, police officers took Mr. Jennings' phone and handcuffed him. Shortly thereafter, police officers began screaming at Mr. Jennings that he must identify himself to them while Mr. Jennings accused the officers of improper conduct. At that point, a white woman approached the scene to vouch for Mr. Jennings, telling the officers that he lived nearby and that he may well have had permission to be watering the flowers. But even after the neighbor's intervention, police continued to tell Mr. Jennings that he was a suspicious person and he should have presented his identification when asked, even though he was not committing a crime. End quote. According to the report, Jennings' family also arrived to confirm his identity, but the officers took him to jail and charged him with obstruction of government operation, which was dropped a month later. Now the pastor is preparing a discrimination lawsuit against the police department. Let's just call a spade a spade. Jennings was racially profiled. For most states, you are not required to provide identification unless an officer has probable cause to believe you're up to something criminal. The pastor was literally watering flowers. This situation is also about who called the police on him in the first place. If you see something, yes, say something. However, a black man watering plants is far from a threat to society. Our next article comes from the Denver Post from an edition earlier in August. And um, this is by Rachel L. Swarns, originally with New York Times Corporation. The Jesuits' Catholic order struggles to raise $100 million to atone for slave labor. A prominent order of Catholic priests vowed last year to raise $100 million to atone for its participation in the American slave trade. At the time, church leaders and historians said it would be the largest effort by the Roman Catholic Church to make amends for the buying, selling, and enslavement of black people in the United States. But 16 months later, cash is only trickling in. The Jesuit priest leading the fundraising efforts said he had hoped that his order would have secured several multi-million dollar donations by now. In addition to an initial $15 million investment made by the order, 
Instead, only about $180,000 in small donations has flowed into the trust the Jesuits created in partnership with a group of descendants whose ancestors were enslaved by the Catholic priests. Alarmed by the slow pace of fundraising, the leader of the group of descendants that has partnered with the Jesuits wrote to Rome earlier this month, urging the order's worldwide leader to ensure that the American priests make good on their promise. The American Jesuits, who relied on slave labor and slave sales for more than a century, had discussed plans last year to sell all of their remaining former plantation lands in Maryland. According to the priests, they discussed transferring the proceeds, along with a portion of the proceeds of an earlier plantation sale of $57 million, to the trust. Money from the trust will flow into a foundation that will finance programs that benefit descendants, including scholarships and money for emergency needs and promote racial reconciliation projects. But the remaining land has yet to be sold, and the proceeds from prior land sales have yet to be transferred to the trust, according to Jesuit officials and descendants. It is becoming obvious to all who look beyond words that Jesuits are not delivering indeed. Joseph M. Stewart, president and chair of the Descendants Truth and Reconciliation Foundation, wrote in his letter to the Reverend Arturo Sosa, the Jesuit superior general. He went on, The bottom line is that without your engagement, this partnership seems destined to fail. In his letter, Stewart warned that hardliners within the order maintained the position that they, quote, never enslaved anyone and thus do not owe anyone anything. In an interview, Stewart said he believed that the Jesuit leadership remained committed to the partnership, describing ongoing meetings and conversations. The point, he said, was that the descendant community needed the priests to do more than talk. In his letter, he called on Sosa to ensure that the American Jesuits complete the land sales and transfer of proceeds by the end of this year and secure the $100 million pledge by next year. He also asked the order to deposit a total of $1 billion into the trust by 2029. The descendants have previously called on the Jesuits to raise $1 billion for their foundation. The Jesuits have said they support that as a long-term goal but have not committed to a timeline. A spokesperson for Sosa did not immediately respond to a request for comment. We're challenging them to be more expeditious, said Stewart, a retired corporate executive whose ancestors were sold by the Jesuits in 1838 to save Georgetown University from financial ruin. Jesuit archival records show show that. Pardon me. How long does it take to do this if you're committed to it, said Stewart. In a statement released Monday, the Reverend Brian G. Paulson President of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States, along with the nation's senior Jesuit leaders, said they have remained deeply devoted to our historic partnership with the descendant community and to working together for racial reconciliation and healing in this country. Paulson and the provisional leaders said they share in the concern of Mr. Jo Joseph Stewart pardon me, and other descendant leaders regarding the pace of our fundraising efforts 
adding that they were continuing to work with our network partners to secure resources. The Jesuits negotiating with the descendants group over the former plantation lands said that they had hired two outside firms to facilitate the sale of the remaining land and that they were in discussions about the $57 million land sale and how a portion of those proceeds might benefit the descendants' trust. The Jesuits announced their $100 million pledge in March of 2021 as part of their efforts to make amends for their history of profiting from slavery. The order relied on the plantations and slave labor to sustain the clergy and to help finance the construction and the day-to-day operations of churches and schools, including Georgetown, the nation's first Catholic institution of higher learning. At the time of the announcement, they said, They had already deposited $15 million in the Descendants' Trust. They had also hired a fundraising firm with the goal of raising the rest of the $100 million over a period of three to five years. The partnership emerged after a group of Descendants pressed for negotiations after learning from articles in the New York Times that that the Jesuits had sold their ancestors to save Georgetown. Next article, also from the Denver Post, Um, this was August 16th edition, comes originally from the New York Times, written by Elian Pelletier. Ivory Coast tries to reap the riches of chocolate. The worker carefully peeled the husks from the cocoa beans to keep them from breaking, then tipped them into a metal tray that a colleague slid into an oven, The aroma of roasting beans filled the small shop in this seaside town of Grand Bassam, where the worker, Marie-France Cosoro, readied the next batch for its journey to becoming chocolate. Nearly six million people rely on the cocoa industry in the West African nation of Ivory Coast, the world's biggest cocoa producer. But most of them are not involved in the processing of the crispy, sour beans that are turned into a sweet treat. Instead, they focus on growing, harvesting, and selling raw cocoa beans bound for Europe and are most excluded, pardon, mostly excluded from the financial benefits produced by the lucrative chocolate industry. It is chocolate made abroad, not raw cocoa, that yields the most revenue and that money flows to and that money pardon me flows to larger foreign producers but in recent years a new generation of ivorian chocolatiers has been trying to change the equation partly financed by the government and international aid agencies these chocolatiers are turning cocoa beans into cocoa powder beverages chocolate bars and other goods in the ivory coast hoping to develop a local chocolate industry whose revenue can flow to farmers and other cocoa workers such as Kosoro. At Choco Plus, the artisanal workshop where Kosoro works, a dozen employees roast and grind cocoa beans, which they make into chocolate paste and cocoa tea, among other products. We're getting by little by little thanks to Coco, said Kosoro, who is 30, a single mother, and used to work long hours in a Chinese restaurant. At Choco Plus, 
She earns 50% more than the country's monthly minimum wage of about $94, and her shift allows her to pick up her three-year-old daughter from a school at a reasonable hour. Similar efforts to spur a domestic chocolate industry have sprung up in other cocoa-producing countries in West Africa, including Ghana and Nigeria. Compared with Europe, the consumption of cocoa in the region remains tiny. In Ivory Coast, it is estimated to be about one pound per person per year, but that is rising for a range of cocoa-based. Oh, but it is rising for a range of cocoa-based products. Pardon me. Chocolate bars tend to be preferred by foreigners, while West Africans favor other delicacies, including cocoa pralines, cocoa butter, cocoa powder, and chocolate spread. Entrepreneurs also are developing cocoa-flavored beers, liquors, and vinegars, and a chocolate beverage mixed with boye, the juice of the baobab tree's fruit. And forgive me, I don't know how to pronounce that drink. Boye, perhaps. The message around cocoa in Ivory Coast has always been to export, 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 said Hervé Dobino, manager at Choco Plus. But there's never been communication about the consumption of cocoa here. The government is working to promote more ventures such as Choco Plus that produce a variety of cocoa-based products as well as bigger industrial companies that can help build a domestic chocolate industry. Processing the beans in Ivory Coast could mean more revenue for Ivorians, more jobs, and new markets, said Frank Coman, coordinator of the Ivorian Fair Trade Network, a nonprofit representing cocoa producers. The need for better wages is immense. Of the one million cocoa farmers in Ivory Coast, nearly 550,000 live below the global poverty line, according to the World Bank, and most of them have never tasted chocolate. On a recent afternoon near Boafle, Sylvan Kofikona trudged through his cocoa farm, handed cash to two young workers who had just cleared it of leaves and cocoa pods. A motorcycle accident four years ago maimed one of his arms and left him with a limp. Kona and his crew cultivate cocoa the way it has been done for decades. In small fields, they slash ripe pods from cocoa trees in the spring and fall, then extract the pulpy white beans, which turn brown after they dry on tarpaulins or banana leaves. They sell the beans to local cooperatives or buyers at nearby markets. The work is grueling and too complicated to be automated. Yields are low. The price of one pound of cocoa in Ivory Coast has dropped this year to 56 cents, down from 70 cents last year because of several factors, including fluctuations in demand and successful bargaining by the industry's bigger companies. Even so, many farmers, such as Kona, Sell at a cheaper price to buyers who offer cash rather than checks because banks are not easy to find in rural areas of the country. To increase cocoa farmers' incomes, the Ivorian government plans to invest about $1.6 billion in a vast overhaul of the industry. Part of that will finance businesses that convert beans into cocoa based products. The country's economy minister, Adama Koulibaly, 
said he found it hard to fathom that more than 60 years after Ivory Coast's independence, 70% of cocoa production leaves the country as raw cocoa beans, forfeiting most of the revenue they could yield. Although Ivory Coast accounts for 45% of the cocoa produced around the world, it receives only about 7% of the global revenue of that commodity. Converting raw beans into more lucrative products that could be exported and sold domestically significantly could reduce the national poverty rate of nearly 40%, said Kolibali. To lure more domestic customers, local firms are turning to appealing marketing arguments They say that cocoa provides cardiovascular benefits and that its beans are an aphrodisiac. Studies have shown that both claims may have some merit. At Choco Plus on a recent morning, a 55-year-old customer, Benjamin Nda, bought cocoa tea, cocoa butter, and a few ounces of roasted beans. Nda, a physics professor who has diabetes, said eating five beans every day for the past few months had helped lower his blood pressure. He and his wife, he said, have also noted other benefits. After his wife ate a bean one night, he also ate one. Then they both went up to five beans, said Nda, with a smile. Believe me, he added, coyly, it was extraordinary. And that brings me to the end of our time for this week just short of about a minute, so we're ending a little early. But thank you so much for joining us for the Black Experience Hour, and please tune in to all of the programs offered here. AINC programming is made possible by the Collins Foundation. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786- 7777.